2: Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries, where every week we bring you the smartest minds in marketing to share their strategies and tactics for building a Demand Gen machine. This is Ben Wilson, executive producer of Demand Gen Visionaries, and today's guest is Sarah Varney, CMO of Twilio. Prior to Twilio, Sarah was a standout SVP of marketing with Salesforce. On this episode, Sarah dives into what she looks for when building an efficient Demand Gen team, how marketing and sales can work in harmony, and her perspective on the future of demand gen as teams adapt to new ways of
1: working. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com.
2: And now for today's episode, let's throw it over to your host, Ian Faison.
0: Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Fazon, host of Demand Gen Visionaries, and CEO at Caspian Studios. We have special guest and fellow dragon, Sarah. How's it going?
1: Good. Good to see you guys again.
0: Yeah, great to have you on the show. Okay, so let's get started. What was your first job in demand gen?
1: My first job in demand gen was kind of an accident, to be quite honest. I uh, started off in tech marketing as a product marketer. And I actually worked on the partner team for Salesforce, so I wasn't even a step removed from supporting a sales team. And one of my colleagues at Salesforce got tapped to run an emerging business unit at Salesforce called Desk.com, and she said, "You're going to come run marketing for me." And I said, "I don't know if I have all the like experience to do that." And she said, "Oh, forget it. You're just going to do it. I trust you. Whatever." So I was thrown right into the deep end, and I was essentially a mini CMO for this product line. So not only did I uh, inherit demand Overnight, but I inherited DemandGen for a high volume small business team. So, right into the deep end of DemandGen, you know, a very growth oriented and self service model. And I remember her turning to me. She's someone who swears quite frequently. If you've met this person, and she was like, How much are we effing spending on SEM? And I was like, You know, Googling like appropriate amounts to spend on B2B businesses for uh, SEM and like combing through HubSpot and trying to find. Find any uh, guidance I could. It was really sink or swim. I had to learn as quickly as I could. I surrounded myself with people who actually knew what they were doing and had more experience in management, and just had to learn the ropes really quickly.
0: What were one of the things that, especially growing up in a product marketing background, where you're completely shifting gears in a lot of ways mentally? What were some of the things that, when you switched over, were the things that were the hardest to really understand? I
1: think from the outside, people might assume that demand gen is 100% science, that you should hire a team full of spreadsheet jockeys and just have them, you know, crunching numbers and and hire a bunch of ex-Wall Street analysts. And I actually think that's the wrong approach. So coming into the role, I learned quickly that it's really a mix of art and science. And you really need to make sure that you are building the healthiest funnel long-term. And that's a mix of short-term wins that are really easy to quantify and that you can instantly see in a spreadsheet and measure year over year and have very clear pipe to spend. And then it's also a mix of awareness tactics that are not perfectly simple to align attribution to. And it takes a little bit more faith in the system to make sure that you are not just thinking about the short-term wins and the immediate pipeline you can feed sales, but also how are you getting people to your website? How are you getting them to engage over a longer period of time? Um, Because ultimately that'll build a much healthier funnel.
0: Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. So this is where we feel honest and trusted and you can share your deepest darkest demand gen secrets with the knowledge you've been given you are now on the inside of what
2: i like to call the circle of trust what i thought we were in the trust tree in the
1: nest are we not no no yeah no i signed up for this yeah
0: so uh you did unfortunately and fortunately for our listeners so what would you say is your like demand gen strategy as cmo at twilio
1: So, I think it goes back to finding that right balance between awareness and shorter term wins. You're always, uh, at least at Twilio, we serve all different segments of the market from a one to two person startup to the largest Fortune 500 companies in the world. And so, with that, I need to make sure that I've got the right balance of campaigns and activity that aligns to those segments. And then I also need to make sure that I have that right cut between the things that are going to pay off in the short term. Maybe that's Google SEM. With more of the long-term plays, what are our organic content strategy? What are the events that we want to attend that might be more industry-focused and not explicitly you know, Tulio focused to build more of a brand over a, a longer period of time? So I'm always trying to make sure that when I'm thinking about allocating my budget, that I'm not over-rotated um, towards any one of those elements too far and that we're, we're building the healthiest funnel that we can long-term.
0: So how do you structure your team to go after your accounts?
1: So we have, as part of the Twilio Marketing Org, we have the benefit of really getting to see everything in those details. So we've got our demand gen function underneath us, and they're they're primarily focused with how do we get people initially interested to sign up. And then we actually have a separate growth team that's focused on sign up to a meaningful amount of conversion. So spending a certain amount, uh, getting to a certain threshold of spend on Twilio. So we actually have those as two separate teams. We also have the developer evangelism team as part part of the Twilio marketing team, which I think is super critical for Twilio because we're such a developer-centric company. Ask your developer. Ask your developer. That's right. That is our longstanding uh, tagline and something that we definitely live true to every day. And so I think having those functions all working together is really important because we're really close to the developer evangelist in terms of what topics are going to be the most relevant at the top of funnel and pull people in. What are the activities we can get to pull people further to a conversation with us and actually start engaging with with our account team? And then ultimately, how can we prep them with the tutorials and the documentation to actually get their projects off the ground? And so being able to have all those functions working together in one marketing org, I think has been really critical to our success.
0: So in terms of your demand gen function, do you think that Like, you know, one of the things is, you know, kind of those breaking down of silos and things like that. Do you feel like there's something that you do that allows you to be a little more integrated and not have it be kind of like standalone siloed from the other parts of the marketing work?
1: I'd love to answer that question in the context of COVID. I think it's actually been really interesting to see how all the groups have come together. I think in the wake of COVID, it's been apparently clear what use cases are going to be most relevant for Twilio and our customer base right now. And so we meet biweekly with a team across the different functions I talked about before. So demand gen, growth, our developer evangelism team, our product marketers. And we're saying, all right, for these use cases, do we have the like why you should be thinking about this use case so that our product manager or a line of business buyer knows why they should be interested in it? And then do we have the actually how you do it? Like, how? all right, we've decided that this is an important use case for the company. Now I need to give my developers the tools to actually go build it. And so I think in making sure that we are looking at use cases from top to bottom, we're able to drive a heavier level of engagement and ultimately conversion in our customer base.
0: When you're looking at the accounts, you mentioned a little bit and I want to get into the personas a little bit more. Do you find that it's difficult when you have so many different types of personas? Because I mean, for obviously with technology companies, the CIO is always important stakeholder. You know, potentially the CTO. You all have obviously marketing and comms or stakeholders. You at Twilio just by the nature of the product is so integrated. Communication is so integrated. It's everything we do now. That you have a lot of different people in that. So for demand gen, you know, trying to say, hey, we need to build pipeline. But, you know, these buying committees might be potentially really big. Like, what do those personas look like? And how do you kind of corral those?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think another part of my strategy is making sure that we're not spreading ourselves too thin because I think it would be easy. To your point, communication is so ubiquitous. There's so many different ways you could take it and there's so many permutations of campaigns you could run. And so I really try when we're thinking about I have an outbound and an inbound approach. So when I think about outbound and how I want to place media, for example, I want to focus on two to three top personas and really concentrate our energy and our resources behind that. So I think about VPs of product or I think about heads of contact center. And I do think about developers in that mix too, just broadly and think about the channels that they typically engage on. Although they're not, I always say rule uh, number one of marketing developers is don't market to the developers. Yeah, know, yeah, they're, they're not going to be the ones clicking on your display ads necessarily. But I do definitely, obviously think of them as a critical persona to us. So you have, you have that element of it. But then I think from an inbound perspective, you want to arm your sales team with as many different use cases as you can, because it is a platform. There's so many different directions that people are going to want to go. And you want to make sure that when a customer comes to them, they know where they can go to get the resources to actually help that customer through that scenario. So I think of it as a push and pull mechanism. You want to put your energy behind two to three personas that you can really put a good amount of resources behind. And then you want to use a pull mechanism so that you're ready for anyone who comes to you. Because as Twilio, because we can help so many different types of companies and so many different departments within an organization, you know, you want to arm your sales rep with as much of that content and enablement to help those customers too.
0: So to build this machine, is that content, those things, are those created inside Demand Gen or external to Demand Gen?
1: It's actually a, the bulk of the content is actually created outside of Demand Gen. We have a huge content engine in our developer evangelists. And you know, they're always trying to identify that intersection of market relevance and twilio relevance. So for example, right now in the wake of COVID, WhatsApp is a super popular channel that people are trying to get their arms around and are really accelerating their roadmaps on. And so our developer evangelists are trying to build as much helpful content tutorials, how to's for our developer community so that they can get up to speed as quickly as possible.
0: I want to talk about the developer evangelist because so many people try to build communities and you actually have a very vibrant one. I've been to Signal and met many of them years ago. And it really is one of the one of the great communities. It's something hard to do. Are your evangelists are those folks that are like Twilio employees? Is it folks that are external? Is it a bit of both?
1: it's It's actually a bit of both we um, we definitely have a developer evangelist crew that we've built up over the years and we try to those are that's kind of our first foray to any region or market that we open like if we're going to go open France as a country we want to make sure that we have a developer evangelist on the ground there but we also really try to build upon network effects that we get out of evangelists that our customers as well. Uh, we have a program called Twilio Champions, and that's all about highlighting and featuring the work of some of the great developers that are in our community. And then they go on our behalf and host events to also you know, share what they've been doing with Twilio, what they've learned that's new about the product. And it's just a great amplifier for all of our efforts.
0: Well, and I'm curious, so for those type of events, you have like the evangelists on the ground, but do you have demand gen people that are like linked in with those folks to make sure that those events are driving pipe, or is it more like those events are a little bit sheltered and we're saying, like, we're not going to put as many gates around
1: it? Yeah, it's a delicate balance. I think you have to stay really authentic to the developer community, and you can't walk around developer meetup with a lead scanner, for example. Yeah, so, yeah, no, exactly. You're going to yeah. get kicked out. Uh, so, we really try, we think of those activities more as top of funnel and brand building over the long term. And we're less focused on how we convert that to a lead form in the short. So, that's again, it's a mix of that. You can't have all of your activities be in that realm because at the end of the day, your sales team has a lead number that they need to feed their reps and to feed how many reps we have on staff. But I do think it's important over the long term to build a community that's very engaged and feels like they can safely come to these events without having to, you know, be marketed to or constantly be kind of chased for some sort of sales opportunity.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great distinction because I think that that's part of the thing, you know, again, as someone who attended Signal, for example, I want to talk about a great blend of of having kind of the, the safe vendor free space as much as you can with a large event versus the very demand gen heavy like hey this is this is something that we're putting effort and energy behind and maybe we're going to go get someone really cool to talk to these people and we're going to put money behind this because it's an ROI generating event as well and I think people understand those two things but I'd imagine that your core personas like the non-developer personas are probably understand those things a little bit better than the ecosystem build.
1: Yes I
0: Let's get to our playbook.
1: This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello?
2: You play to win the game.
0: This is our segment where we open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that go towards the strategies that we were just mentioning. So can you give me three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items the boss says budget's getting cut across the board and you're like these three things no matter what these are staying
1: Weird to say this right now, but field marketing is a line that I would kind of lay on the tracks for for sure. We've had to really reimagine what field marketing looks like in this world. I think people have gotten. I think everyone's going to come out of COVID a much stronger marketer because we've just been forced to think about new ways to engage people, especially in the higher segments where those dinners and those kind of networking opportunities and CIO councils and you know c level networking opportunities are really critical. We've had to get really creative about how reimagine that playing field. But I just think that there's no better substitute for driving a large amount of pipeline, especially in the upper, upper segments. I think another one is your investment in organic content. And it's odd because people don't normally list that out. When you say like, what are things that you can't cut budget wise, you know, people go to like their, you know, Google ad spend, and that might be my third. So I don't want to totally discredit Google. But I don't know that people always include organic as a, a budget line item, but that's definitely a resource you, you need to fund the team. You need to fund the writers. You need to be committed to constantly looking at how you're performing from an SEO perspective. And you know, we've seen in the wake of COVID, I think we've seen some work that the investment that we've made over the last couple of years really pay off, as people have started to search for things that might have been in the the longer tail of our SEO criteria, but there are things that are hyper relevant right now, and so that investment in you know, making sure that we've got coverage for a broad surface area of use cases is is really paying off, and something that I want to continue to invest in. And then I think the third is you know I think there are some tried and true paid channels. I think that there are, although I've been you know, talking a lot about the long game, making sure that you've got the right awareness play for the long haul. There are very easy, low hanging fruit. Google SEM is always kind of a go to if you just need to. If you get uh, you know an into quarter influx of money, you know that's an easy place to. Go and make sure that you're going to have a guaranteed amount of SQLs in return for that. So,
0: I'm curious specifically with regards to Twilio being a platform publicly traded company, I, I mean, your your brand awareness amongst your personas has got to be really, really high, right? I mean, I'd imagine it's not like you're doing like, hey, what is Twilio? It's those type of conversations. So I'd imagine specifically with regards to like content and figuring out certain types of things that you're writing, of course, that would be uncuttable for you all because these are helpful, very important things that we need to write for people that are considering us. You know what I mean? It's not just like, you know, who the heck are we?
1: right I think generally we're known, you know, as a brand and increasingly so. But I think that people don't know the breadth of offering that we have. I think people generally know that we deliver SMS for Uber or Lyft, or that when you get notification reminder from your dentist or your hair salon confirming an appointment, that's normally Twilio behind the scenes. But we have a full suite of communications products for pretty much everything under the sun. So email with our acquisition of SendGrid um, video, we've had a huge influx in our video business. And that's a great example of something that's just come into full focus with COVID. Uh, We've seen a huge spike in the number of telehealth companies who have come to us, for example, to deliver more uh, on-demand doctor appointments. And then we have products even for things like IoT. So within every Lime bike or Lime scooter that you see on the street, there is a Twilio embedded SIM card that is tracking the movement of that vehicle or transportation device. And that's again, powered by Twilio. So while, I agree. I think that we are a known player in the space. I don't know that people realize the full power of what Twilio can do for customer engagement. And that's where my team is really focused, especially from organic content perspective, to make sure that when someone's trying to embed video in their app, it's obvious that we're a key player to do that.
0: You mentioned the field marketing events and how those are changing, and that's you know your number one or top three uncuttable budget item. I think a lot of people that felt like, especially pre-COVID, that it's like, this is a bread and butter thing for us because we know the plays, we know how to do it, and we know exactly how this builds a relationship that's closer to sales. We know the people that attended, we know the topic that was discussed, we can put them in a spreadsheet and we can give that to sales and say, go after it. As that changes to digital events, as that changes to different sort of things, and as sales doesn't have the, oh, I talked to her at this event, um, which gives them that warm and fuzzy, those things change. How do you think that that changes the relationship with sales to deliver that pipeline number?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that I have noticed, and this is no discredit to my sales team, we've got a great relationship and we we have the mentality that we're not so hyper-focused on what's marketing source and sales source. We're focused on what's our overall pipeline goal and how do we get to it together. But I do think just to what you said, when you're not having to meet someone at the event yourself or get them to their seat or you know introduce them to someone personally. Sometimes sales feel removed from that process and doesn't honestly know how they can help to drive registration. So I think some of that burden in this digital world, we're removing a lot of our face-to-face events to digital platforms. The the burden does come on marketing to get you know virtual butts in seats, uh, which is a different dynamic. And so we're trying to think of other ways to incent sales to have that same level of focus and attention that they would if they had to go show up at the Morton's down the street and you know shake the customer's hand. But I don't know that we've completely nailed that down yet.
0: Well, and I think a lot of the times those events are about, you know, the salesperson getting in the three sentences that they wanted to get in or the one or two questions that they got to ask. And I think that that's the big difference is like a lot of these people, you know, everybody's really busy and sales just wants to know like, hey... Did you know we have a video product, for example? That's the one question that that sales rep is going into that of like, hey, we did this event, I need to meet this person and ask them if they they know this so that I can get confirmation on that. And it kind of goes back to like what demand gen is, is like creating demand. So now as a marketing team, you have to think about how do we make sure that the questions that sales wanted to know are being brought up in a way that we can like acknowledge that they heard it, right? Not just that we spewed it into the ether and hope that they were listening. Or whatever, like, how do we get confirmation that we're getting answers to this so that they want to learn more about it and, you know, schedule a sales call? And that's a harder proposition.
1: One thing that I found that's key is that, especially for the executive events, you keep them small and intimate so that you can keep better track of that conversation and more people are engaged. I think the larger those events are, the easier it is to, as a participant, to get distracted, check your email, do whatever, because you don't feel that responsibility to keep the conversation going. You couldn't sit at a dinner table and, you know, just, I mean, some people do this, but you'd be a lot ruder to sit there and be on your phone. Whereas, you know, when you're, when you're behind a Zoom screen or you're behind your monitor, like you can get away with more of that. You want to make sure that people feel the pressure that they might be cold called on, that they're going to, yeah. you, you want to create a good environment right like i don't i don't want to revisit my mba days where i was like nervous that i hadn't you know read the brief the day before but it's much easier for people to check out of these things. And so you have to think about ways to constantly keep them engaged, think about ways to you need a good moderator too for these to make sure that they're not letting any one person monopolize a conversation. And so I think that you can't just lift and shift the environment that you used in face to face events and programs, you've really got to think about how you create the most engaging, you know, digital experience.
0: Yeah. One of the things that specifically with those like small batch events, I think that a lot of marketers often miss is like trying to control the narrative so much and not leave the serendipity. I think a lot of marketers don't realize that, especially if they're marketing to like senior leaders, they're doing this anyways. They have private chat groups. They have private groups of meetings where they're meeting with peers already. They were doing this during COVID, whether or not you were helping plan them or not. So to be able to plan something for them, you need to figure out how does this thing provide the value and be able to stay away a little bit, but also control the conversation. Again, that's a hard thing to do.
1: Yeah. I think you basically want to be the kindling for that conversation and then let it take off from there. I think there's no better way I found so much benefit in bringing customers and prospects together. I think some people hesitate from that because they're nervous that, you know, a customer is going to say the wrong thing. But more often than not, if a customer is going to attend one of your events to do that, they're going to tell them all the great things about their product, why they're committed to it. And there's no better selling vehicle than that.
0: I feel the exact same way. Why are people so nervous about that? I hear that all the time. Why is that?
1: I don't know. I think that people are nervous that the good and the bad would come out. But if you think about someone that's going to show up for an event, that's going to take time out of their personal life to come attend an event on your behalf, and they're a decision maker, they're going to be proud of the technology decision they made, and they're going to share that with your prospects. I I think nine times out of 10, that's what happens. I've I've rarely seen that go the other way.
0: And even if they do bring up something that they're not working, it's like at least the person has a heads up of like, hey, this is, I'm getting the ground truth. They said implementation would take You know, two weeks and it took six. FYI, plan that into your planning cycle.
1: Right, exactly.
0: And then you're getting someone other than sales or marketing that's telling you those things. You know, one of the things that obviously we are very cognizant of here, we're sitting in the qualified.com studio and they're the sponsor of this podcast. But with one of the pieces being really important is obviously your website because you're driving traffic and you're trying to have conversations. And one of the things that you talked about was how... You don't want to be the the sales team that's just constantly, you know, getting back in after the event, hounding them for the 15 minute, are we a fit call or whatever. But if that person immediately after that event is going to your website and wants to talk to someone in real time, like what a great opportunity now to have that conversation in real time rather than... You know, hey, they have a 30 minute block after this meeting and they're just gonna go check out the product right now. Let's talk to them on the site, you know?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think your website is, I think of my website as a window into our brand. And I think that that takes different dimensions. I think it's a conversion vehicle for these scenarios you just laid out. You, Someone goes to an event, they come online. You wanna know everything you can about them so that you're engaging them in a very contextual and appropriate way, that, you know, you're not treating them as a stranger or just sending them to some ebook from 2006. Getting them to you know go just fill out the lead form. So I think more and more so it's really important to build a really engaging website. But I also think you have to make sure that you're not over-rotated only on optimization of your website and also thinking about what purpose does it serve from a brand perspective. I think if you only have the especially if you're marketing to all segments, if you're just focused on SB and your self-service model, like sure, you should be focused on optimization until the cows come home. But If you are a company like Twilio that is trying to sell to all segments, you also need to think about what are the customer stories I'm telling on my site? How does my annual user conference, if it were live or even digital, how is that showing up on the website? And those are things that aren't necessarily, again, going to show up in the spreadsheet tomorrow, but they're super important for your brand. And if you're trying to sell to the Fortune 500 and they come to your site and only see rinky-dink companies or, or people that they can't associate with, that might be the only chance you get. And so I think you've got to think about again that balance of what's the long-term strategy for this property versus the short-term need when it comes to leads And especially
0: tying those into the things that we've talked about, which is like, if we just spent all this time and effort to have this particular person on this private six person whiskey and wine, digital tasting, when they come to the site, we should know who the heck they are and be able to talk to them and not the alternative, which is like treat them like an SMB customer that's coming to the site. And again, that not that the SMB customers is very important as well, but like what they're looking to do as a person who just found it clicking on a, a on a Google ad or something is just a totally different thing.
1: I think we've had to reimagine what high touch looks like for a digital world now. And so that kind of personalization and being able to identify who's coming into your site, where they came from is super critical and can be the difference between them moving further down the funnel or not.
0: Do you have a favorite demand gen campaign? And we can go back to the Salesforce days. We can talk some Twilio stuff, whatever you want, favorite campaigns.
1: I think that campaigns can serve an online purpose, but they also can serve a huge purpose in educating your sales team. And so I I have one campaign I really liked at Salesforce that a colleague of mine ran, Jamie Domenici, who's like an incredible demand gen leader and product marketer. And it was called Find, Win, Keep. And it was basically a way for our small business team to start solution selling. So not just selling the sales cloud product, but also to sell our marketing cloud product as well as our service cloud product. Product. And it was very simple, memorable. Everyone was, you know, speaking the same language, and it worked. It translated online too. It was an easy message to then go and take to our digital advertising and to a lot of our content. And you know, it's a campaign that I think people would still remember today within the walls of, of Salesforce, and probably a language that our SMB team still uses. And so I always think that that's a great sign of a campaign that it's not just, you know, something that you remember online, but it's something your sales team still recites and is really ingrained in the way they speak about your products.
0: I want to jump back to the uncuttable budget items for a second, because I forgot to ask you, what is the budget item that you've looked at over the past few years and said, you know what? this just doesn't really work for us.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, lead buys always sound like super good in theory and there are some good programs through content syndication. You have to pick the right ones, but in general, I just think anything that sounds too good to be true is too good to be true. You know, I've often heard people like, Oh, let's just go buy a list or let's do whatever. And it just is a lot of calories for, for ultimately what you get back. I think that we've kind of moved beyond that as a, as an industry and
0: function. That's totally true. That was a great one.
1: Well, and especially in the wake of GDPR, it's much harder to even get to a list to begin with. So that just that whole dynamic has changed.
0: More to the point why the uncuttable budget items speak to that exact thing, right? If you're talking field marketing, you're talking original content, and you're talking Google ads. Those three things are the antithesis of a lead buy, right? Yep. Any campaigns that were the biggest learning experience?
1: I think that uh, one campaign that I personally run, I'll take the blame on this one. Again, at Salesforce was for the App Exchange, And it wasn't a terrible campaign, but we hit a million installs. And so we were trying to think about how do we make this fun and exciting? And so we went down this path of like the McDonald's over a million customers served. And it was cute. We had a like uh, infographic for it with like layers of a hamburger and what that meant for the app exchange ecosystem and, and on and on. But it was like way inside baseball. Like I think we largely did it because the exec who was leading the team at the time would always say, well, if you crush this, I'm taking you to McDonald's. And so it kind of became like this inside joke that turned into an external campaign. So not my finest moment. We did get an article in TechCrunch from this with a picture of a hamburger that made no mention of why there was a hamburger in it. So maybe that's, you know, success to a certain extent. But, uh, you know, I think looking back, it was a little bit hokey.
0: You made that TechCrunch reporter's day.
1: Right, exactly.
0: I got something I can write. Hamburger and tech sells... Any trends that you're excited about?
1: I think we're all going to come out of COVID as stronger marketers. I think that they, I'm seeing industries being completely upended. I think when you think about retail, for example, people are having to reimagine how they can make it through these next few quarters without having all of you know their locations potentially open. And you have to think about how can I replicate that experience when I walk into J Crew and the lady says, "Hey, how are you doing? You know, can I help you with anything today?" Or uh, you know, the dressing room attendant says, "Oh, I know you saw this shirt. Have you thought about this, that, and the other?" And how can you replicate that curation, that level of customer service in the digital world? And I think that's really exciting to think about as marketers and people focused on customer experience. Uh, and you know, I'm interested to see what happens. You can see these marriages of like Sonic Drive Through meets Banana Republic. Like I think there's Going to be all of these new kind of inventions that come out of the world we're we're living in right now. And you know, I'm really excited to see what people dream up.
0: I one of the things that I've thought about that with how you communicate with people post-sale for individual products, I think is so interesting because like I've bought a bunch of stuff online, as everyone has during COVID, specifically with retail, and we always buy Products that we've already bought, right? So it's like if there's a pair of uh, whatever Arc'teryx pants, it's like I'm just gonna buy an Arc'teryx product that's the same because I know that that exact product fits, right? And I think that it's so crazy how little you ever get communications from retailers about the exact item that you purchased back three years ago or four years ago or something like that, right? Where it's like, hey. They should know, right? They should know that I bought whatever Merrells or they should know these things and I should get a text message or I should get, you know, whatever it is to say, Hey, it's probably time, you know, how are those shoes working out? Like, were they pretty good? Because uh, if, if you're looking for something in the exact same size, these are that, but you know, for cold weather or warm weather, or right. whatever. We don't get that. We get a million emails about like fifty percent off for Fourth of July, but we don't get those personalized messages about things that we bought nearly enough. I mean, other than Amazon, which does it a lot,
1: right? No, I mean, I think personalization is key and and going to be really key to conversion moving forward, for sure.
0: Let's get into our dust up segment. Uh oh, here comes trouble.
1: You may. That there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly because we've got punches and kicks.
0: So the dust up is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or just anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust up in your career?
1: Generally pretty even keeled, but uh, I think I was thinking about this as we were preparing for this session, and I laughed because by the time I left Salesforce, I spent 11 years there. I was I was a air quote old timer, and some of the new management that was coming in was suggesting these ideas that I was like, "This will never work" because I've never. I've never seen it work at Salesforce in a time and you should just give up on this and like, you know, keep down the path. And I'm sure that was really frustrating to my managers at the time. But, you know, now being on the other side, at Twilio, I'm in the newcomer, right? And I'm trying to bring some of the process or, or some of the things that I had learned from Salesforce. And so now I have crazy empathy for uh, my managers at Salesforce because I can see how it, it is hard to drive change in certain parts of a company that, you know, has a really strong culture and value set established. So, you know, I think that uh, I was was probably like the angsty teenager at Salesforce. And now I've come around and realized I needed to have more empathy for that leadership team at the time because... I had the same thing coming ahead of me.
0: It's funny you say that because I think so often the adage of can't be done this way. But the reason why you say that is because you're like, no, no, we've tried this like five different times in these different ways. I'm just trying to save us some pain. Like I have all the scars to prove that this type of campaign, whatever billboard campaign won't work for this product because we've done it. So there's a fine line there. Yeah,
1: there is. And there, you know it, it should be a mix. You should learn from the past mistakes. And it, there's tons of valuable feedback that I get from existing Twilions all the time that things I absolutely want to avoid. But I also think like you don't want to give up on new ideas, too. And I think you should always try to be pushing the envelope and pushing the company forward.
0: You mentioned a little bit about having the single source of truth with sales that we're just, we're not going to get into the weeds about sourcing this, sourcing that, sales versus marketing, all that stuff. So I'm curious, how do you get measured? How do you work with sales to develop that kind of single source of truth?
1: So I work really closely with our sales team. And one thing that I encourage, especially my demand gen team to do is to get on calls, to um, really get as close to the sales process as they can so that they're not building campaigns or activities in some ivory tower and just you know throwing it over the fence and, and expecting sales to adopt it. So that's really key to us having a good relationship. We're not going to be like knives out about sales source versus marketing source. We absolutely do measure it and, make, and we have targets that are very focused on who's contributing to what. But we also want to make sure that we are not Taking away funds or accelerating programs that aren't really driving the right impact, and so we take a really close look at. All right, even though this lead might show up as sales sourced, they uh, you know started off by they started off as a developer signup, and then they went to three events, and then they downloaded four white papers, and then they did X, Y, and Z. And so we try to look at the full picture of our customer to make sure that we're continually investing in the right things and not just relying on how you know the last touch first touch model or anything like that to explicitly determine how we'll spend moving forward.
0: Yeah, I think the last touch, first touch, is is a great example of how things are changing. It's so much more, you know, we always talk about the customer journey, but it really is a journey now. And when you have a platform like Twilio, where you talked about so many different products and things like that, it really is a journey because it's not just about buying one thing. It's about hey, what are other products that they could be using? So therefore, you know, just landing that initial them as a customer, the new logo kind of mindset is not really that helpful if you don't have the resources behind. Hey, let's empower this person. Let's get this customer story to figure out how we can tell this and how we can help them along the way.
1: Yeah, I think it's being as, uh, as back to the personalization being as specific as possible is going to get you further Like if you're talking to someone in the healthcare industry with a financial services story It's just going to be harder for them to relate So to the extent that we can provide good coverage in terms of content by industry as well I think we've definitely seen dividends coming back there
0: Any other demand gen specific thoughts here or anecdotes or or just any other stuff before we get into our quick hit segment?
1: Uh I mean, I think you just want to make sure that you've got a balanced demand gen team. We didn't talk so much about how to, you know, staff the ideal demand gen team. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Let's staff it. Let's do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that you need people that I personally have found the people to be most successful in demand gen and probably oversimplifying and being stereotypical, but are um, those that are waking up in the morning and they're like, where's my lead report? Where's my, you know, media report on what's been performing and just really sweat the numbers and are like hustlers when it comes to the numbers and you give them a target and they're like a dog with a bone. They're like, I am going to come hell or high water. I am going to figure out, you know, how to hit this. And they also have a good sense for the right balance between awareness tactics and paid tactics. And they also have a hunger and curiosity to seek out new vendors. If something's not working or something's starting to level off, they're like, all right, who are the next five people I'm going to swap in there? And I always try to make sure that I've got uh, the members of my demand gen team are kind of wired for that mindset and are really focused that way. And then I'd say the second thing is obviously a desire to work really closely with sales to, you know, treat them as a partner, to, spend more time potentially with the sales team than you do your marketing peers, because they're uh, a huge stakeholder for our work and uh, our main stakeholder for our work. And I think it's really critical to always be in tune with what they need and what's working, getting the, closing the feedback loop with them to see what's working and what's not. And so, you know, that's another trait and characteristic I look for in my demand gen people.
0: With regards to engagement, obviously with the rise of ABM, engagement is it's in every acronym to have a depth of engagement. You kind of have sometimes the folks that are the super analytical people that are dedicated to the spreadsheet, but the spreadsheet doesn't always tell the depth of the engagement, how that person is really feeling at the time, which is what you kind of need sales to be able to talk to them out and discover those truths. How do you view demand gen and finding the right folks that want to build deeper engagements with prospects?
1: I think it's people who take responsibility for the full funnel and not just say, all right, my job's done at MQLs. Once the marketing qualified lead is created, I'm done. That's it. I think it's people who are also sweating. All right. Did those actually come to sales qualified leads, sales really think that that was a real lead, and so I think you need people who who really take ownership. One of our values at Twilio is be an owner, and I think a lot of if I think about the makeup of my demand gen team, a lot of those people are definitely definitely live that value every day. They're thinking about all right, it's not just about hitting one little square on the spreadsheet. It's how does that whole spreadsheet come together and and what's really coming out at the bottom? I could be generating a bunch of leads and no revenue at the end of the day and that's not the best thing for Twilio either. So I think having those demand gen leaders that are entrepreneurial in nature and really think about the impact that they're driving is how I get to that.
0: Let's get into our quick hits. These questions are quick fun, silly, but they're just as quick as qualified.com. If you're a prospect on your website right now, you could be talking to them in real time, quickly. Qualified.com. Check them out. We love them. They're the sponsor of the show. Quick hits. Are you ready, Sarah? Number one, if you weren't a CMO, if you could be anything else, what would you be?
1: I would love to be a writer for like a late night television show.
0: Ooh, that's a good one. I'll join you. I'll be on staff. I'm in. Do you have a... Hobby or a habit that you picked up during shelter in place?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I actually have become pretty good at making cocktails. I guess probably a few people have, have also acquired that trait. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I've, um, I've learned like some really random ones like a Hemingway daiquiri and uh, a lot of uh, gin gimlets and vodka gimlets. And I don't know, I've kind of got it all nailed down now. <laughs> I don't know what it says about me.
0: Do you have a hidden talent or passion besides your craft cocktail adventures?
1: Randomly, speaking of personalization, I got targeted with a pogo ball ad the other day on Instagram, and three months into COVID, I said, why not? And you know what? I still got it. I can still do the pogo ball. I jumped right on that thing, and my 10-year-old and my 6-year-old daughters were uh, were super impressed. So... Uh, You never know.
0: We had uh, my brother made a homemade pogo ball and a homemade scooter back in the day. (laughs) Neither of them worked well, but it was more just mostly getting injured. But fun while it lasted.
1: I want to bring the uh, roller racer back. Do you remember those? Those were hours of fun, too. skip it? Oh, yeah,
0: totally. (laughs) We also had a homemade skip it, which was like literally like a ball on a string. I don't know why we had so many DIY... uh, fad
1: i'm blending the skip it with like the get in shape girl line do you remember that they had like a whole like fitness i don't know it was like pre-obesity epidemic clearly it didn't work but anyway
0: skip it in retrospect that's it's basically just like one-legged
1: jump rope kind of yeah, 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 yeah jump yeah, rope
0: yeah, yeah. it's actually kind of hard no, i don't know we should all bring that back too.
1: like skip it gyms it's gonna be like the new like trampolining
0: yeah, exactly what's well, it's portable. We might need to bring this back out. We'll get a line of Caspian Skippets and then we'll be uh and we'll be really raking in the dough. You mentioned retailers, any, uh, any particular, uh, binge purchases that you've made in shelter in place from your favorite retailers?
1: Uh, yeah, I've clearly, I'm picking up whatever Instagram's putting down clearly, (laughs) but I'm a big fan of Wari sweatpants. I don't know if you've seen these. You should go get a pair. I bought my whole team a pair as a shelter in place gift. They're just like the softest sweatpants V U O R I. This is not a sponsored placement, but they're incredible.
0: I'm my anniversary's coming up. Up, I will be purchasing one of these. They have I'm shorts
1: in- too, if you feel like you're beyond the jogger season. So
0: no, we're always in the jogger season. What piece of advice would you give to a CMO or a first time CMO to help fix their demand gen strategy?
1: Uh, I think just, you know, get under the hood as quickly as you can go look at your funnel top to bottom, figure out where your biggest levers are and where you can have the most impact and then get in front of your sales team as quickly as possible, especially if you're not just a hundred percent a self-serve model. I think you want to go out on a sales call, listen to some inbound sales calls just to hear what your sales team's up against. And I think you'll just be, that will accelerate your learning much, much faster than almost anything you could do.
0: Sarah, that's it. That's all we got for today. Any final thoughts?
1: No, I just, I hope all of my colleagues in the community out there is hanging in through COVID. I know it's been a crazy time. It's been a crazy time to to lead people. And I do really believe we're all going to come out of this uh, stronger marketers. And I look forward to seeing everyone face to face, hopefully someday soon.
0: Indeed. Thanks so much for stopping by, everybody. Check out Twilio. If you haven't, they have a whole suite and really cool stuff for marketers too. Just go check it out. Twilio is the best. Thanks, Sarah.
1: Yeah, thank you.
2: Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.